Today, we're excited to sit down with Mike Zanni, the CEO of The Predictive Index. The Predictive Index is a talent optimization platform that uses over 60 years of proven science and software to help businesses design high-performing teams and cultures, make objective hiring decisions, and inspire greatness in people. Mike Zanni is also the co-founder and partner at Phoenix Strategy Investments, a private investment fund, an avid sailor, and was also coach of the 1996 U.S. Olympic sailing team. Mike's newly released first book, The Science of Dream Teams, provides entrepreneurs and leaders with actionable advice on how to win, starting with your talent and human resources strategy. Lots of aha moments in this one for me. Let's jump right in. Mike, welcome to the Entrepreneurs United podcast. Rich and I are very excited to have you on here today to learn more about yourself, Predictive Index, and also a new book coming out I hear. So can you please start off by telling our audience a little bit more about yourself, your entrepreneurial upbringing, and where you are today with Predictive Index? Absolutely. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks, Rich. It's, it's great to be here. Uh, my business partner and I buy used companies with other people's money. And then we take them over and we run them. We try and grow them. We sell them. So it's like flipping houses with a live-in reno, except the reno is in living in is taking day-to-day -day operating roles. So we're on our fourth platform, uh, which is now the predictive index. So we've been pretty entrepreneurial. At, at when we started, we didn't have any money. So it was 100% other people's money. Now, each time we put in a lot more of our own capital. Uh, it's, a great, it's, it's, a, it's a great job um, because you get your own perfect ball of clay to work with and you get to wake up every morning and pound on the ball of clay to shape it into whatever you want. And uh, some days are painful and some days are completely joyous, but uh, that's what we do. Wow, that's great. So this is your fourth company. Can, can you tell us a little bit about the other companies you bought? And did you enter and exit those companies along the way? We did. Uh, we did. I, uh, you know, Daniel, my business partner, and I met at business school, and we, we ran into this, this business model called a search fund. And a search mm -hmm. fund, you, you get 10 high net worth individuals or thereabouts to back you to fund a search to find a single company. And you, you buy it and those same 10 high net worth individuals give you the equity to, to purchase the company. And then, you know, day one, you install yourself as management. And so when we, we first purchased a company in 2004, law enforcement development company in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, it was a small manufacturer that made rugged docking stations for cop cars. Okay. And we, we, we own that from 0409, grew it from we bought it for six. We sold it for 35. Wow. Million, million. Yeah. Well, that's great. So I, I love the entrepreneurial journey. And, and certainly, you know, I'm going to ask you a question now, which may bring us all the way back to predictive index, which is, you know, when you search for a company, what are you looking for? Because uh, obviously you, you, you had a search fund, you, you searched, found four companies. Uh, now you're on predictive index. What are some of the key criteria you were looking for or continue to look for in companies? Well, when we got started, we were 32, 34 when we bought the company. So we were sort of 30 and 32 when we started looking and yep. we were not very attractive buyers. You know, people looked at us and you're like, are your parents going to show up? Um, <laughs> and, you know, you're competing against private equity funds. So the, the truth to the first one was we were lucky to buy any company. Mm -hmm. um, you, we wanted to get in the game. We wanted to buy a company that didn't have a binary outcome. Because if you're buying one company, there's zero portfolio effect. You're going to succeed or fail. We wanted to make sure that we had something that wasn't going to go to zero. That was a solid, steady company. And we were going to grow it and get our first deal under our belt. 
build a great team and, you know, build a great company and, and, and sell it. And it, it, it took five years, but we used a framework. We looked at one marketplace attractiveness, you know, two competitive position in the marketplace and three, what value were we going to add to it? And okay. every analysis used that. We also applied a fourth, which was, is this a good fit for us? Yep. You know, we, you know, we looked at, we looked at a company that made, uh, uh, you know, rims for uh, cars and they were sort of, we're like, can we get our arms around this? Like they, their calendar has naked women. You're like, I'm, I'm not sure I can <laughs> do that business. You know, we looked at a cosmetics company. We're like, nope, nope, no, nope, I'm not sure we could do that one. So we needed to make sure there was fit, but we analyzed every company from that perspective. And, you know, so we bought a, a company that made rugged docking stations to put hardened computers in cop cars. And it was a solid little business, you know, small market, but mm -hmm. we sort of went from fifth in market share to first over the period of time that we owned it. Great. So, so that was your first one. And you repeated that a couple of more times. And I'm assuming when you looked at a predictive index, you looked at these four things again. What's the marketplace? You know, how does this company fit competitively? What value can you add? And is it a good fit? So can you tell us, like, when did you get involved with predictive index a little bit? And tell us a little bit more about what predictive index is as a company? Sure. Well, we, we became a client of the predictive index in uh -huh. 2006 when we were at Ledco, the, the, the first company. So we, we bought this company. We, we made a mistake. So, so we were, Daniel and I were fortunate enough to go to Harvard Business School. You think they teach you a lot there and they try to, and they do, but you know, we knew enough about strategy to come up with the right plan. We knew enough about finance to know what to pay for it. We knew enough about, we had a good enough network to be able to raise the money. You know, we knew enough about marketing and sales, blah, blah, blah. We missed the people side, like the 45 people that we acquired that were running the company, running the old founders strategy were not the people that we needed to run our much more sophisticated, hardcore, fast growth strategy. So only four of those 45 people made it. Like we missed in due diligence, the people side of the business. And it took us a long time to figure that out. So PI was one of the tools that we discovered. We became clients. And when we sold the company in 09, we were like, great, let's go buy PI. That thing was a gem and it's a diamond in the rough. They don't know what they have. So we tried to buy PI in 09 and got close, pitched the board, they, but they said no. But in, we, we invested in two more companies. But in 2014, Daniel and I had a chance that the founding family was, was ready. So we, we were patient. It took us five years of courtship, wow. but we finally got PI. And this was the gem we wanted. This is by far the best horse we've ridden. This is an amazing company, huge total addressable market, big idea. And we love it. You know, we were, we had natural affinity for it. So it's like a dream job for us. Mike, what's, what is predictive index and why would it be a value for entrepreneurs? Well, the, the predictive index is at its core, a psychometric uh, assessment company. You know, we have a, a large amount of psychometric assessments, which, you know, people go, what, what's that? Um, you know, what are psychometric assessments, but we, we built this talent optimization platform and it helps people with the talent side of their business. So every CEO has a strategy. Most, 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 you know, some are good, some aren't. 
most of those actually have a financial plan one to five years to back up that strategy and to underpin it. But tragically few actually have a talent strategy outside of like boxes in Excel that says, oh, we're going to add seven people this year or this yep. quarter. So, you know, the, tal the talent optimization is the, you know, the, the art and the science of building world-class teams to support your strategy because strategies don't execute themselves. People execute those strategies. And there's a whole bunch of science and there's a whole bunch of software. And, there's a, and then we have a consulting network of 700 consultants, which provide those services. Um, and we've grown the business. It was 16 and a half million in, um, in 2014 when we bought it and we're closing in on a hundred million, um, you know, six awesome. years later, seven years later. So really got the growth thing going with the company, rebuilt the software, revalidated the science and sort of scaled the engine behind, behind this. We got 8,500 clients and, um, you know, we're, we're getting, getting some growth on. So curious, um, walk you through my understanding of like a psychometric assessment company and just want to validate this is what we're talking about. So as a entrepreneur, as an employer, I say, I want to fill a sales role or an office role or a field role. And what your company does is has a sales role profile that the candidates who I may want to put in that position, I invite them to take the predictive index. They take that, might be an hour long assessment or so. What you guys push out is then a report that comes to me as the entrepreneur that says, here's the level of fit this particular candidate has for that particular role. And that informs my ability to go do an interview to confirm or deny some of the preferences I heard back from you. Can you correct or fill in any gaps around my understanding of what you may do and what that looks like in terms of how an entrepreneur may use it? No, that, that, that was a good description of our hire module. So the, the, all the pre-hire work, you know, that you've got a very specific role, you use sales uh, as an example. And that's a great example because it's, it's, it's well known, well understood, and it's a, typically a pretty specific role. Um, you know, there are roles like product development where you don't have master profiles. Like people can be successful in product development with, with any, you know, any sort of behavioral profile. And that, then it's more important. It's, it's less important about the role and more about the team and how they fit and what you're trying, the type of work you're trying to do. So we have a, we have four major modules. There's, there's the design module, what you're trying, what are you trying to do? What's the work you're trying to do and what, what's the best team to do it. We have interpersonal modules, you know, how to get, John and Rich to work better together, you know, and we have um, engagement and performance modules to measure things because it, it, it's not just about hiring. You know, a lot of our competitors do hiring really well. You know, it's, that's a known red water product, but you know, a lot of the other stuff, the post hire things, how do you, how do you bring analytics to management? How do you bring analytics to relationships so that you get the most out of your people? So I'm curious on the hiring side, you use the word master profiles. How many master profiles do you have available 
at uh, your company? That's not an easy question to answer. Um, we, we really let you design your own master profiles. Okay. Um, we do use all of our data and analytics and AI to provide suggestions, but just take your sales role. There are collaborative sales processes. There's technical sales. There's relationship sales, consult, consultative sales. Like all of those profiles have slightly different, you know, nuances to it. And then you have to determine who are you selling to? If you're selling to technologists who are typically introverted, you cannot hire an extroverted sales team. They do all the talking and they, they, they're not very good at selling to introverts. So yeah. you, 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 what you do is you suggest, but you give tools to help refine and, and validate those master profiles. And sometimes, like I said, with product, you, you have a really open you know, aperture that you're not trying to, to find the perfect fit. You're trying to architect the best team. So it sounds very customized on the hiring side. There's not a finite number of profiles. You partner with companies for what they're looking for, who their client is, and customize what they do. And that's where our partner network comes in is because there's, there's the work. I mean, if, if you wanted to hire, um, you know, let's, let's take your business. If you wanted to hire, uh, you know, salespeople to convince people to become a franchisee that uh, you, you know, we, we actually Subway is a huge client of ours and, and, and they do exactly that. You know, they identify franchisees. They know is someone going to own one store What's the probability of this? This profile is a one-store profile. This profile is someone who wants to own 12. And that's a really important thing to know because you as the franchisor want to uh, pl place more of your investment in, in, the larger, in, in, the, in the larger model. Got it. So you help on the hiring end. Talk to me about the interpersonal engagement and performance and that after someone is hired by an entrepreneur, how your company helps that entrepreneur get the best out of their employees? Yes. Yeah, so so most, most entrepreneurs, um, and, and thank goodness have this, this, they can, they can do everything sort of naturally gift. They're gifted and they're super confident. Unfortunately with those with that approach, you often bring a lot of your own bias to bear. They're like, I'm really gifted at hiring people. I know talent when I see it. And what that really is, is they're bringing their conscious and unconscious bias to bear. So they don't, they not only do that on the hire, but they also do it in how they manage. Most people manage the way they themselves want to be managed. And this is no mistake. You know, think about your life. You were an individual contributor, probably somewhere. Then all of a sudden you someone gave you a, a project, you managed the heck out of that project. And then they said, oh, we're gonna give you a resource. Here's, here's a body or two. Now you have, you know, a year later, you got four or five people, you get a little bit of budget and you're managing people. And you're thinking to yourself, gosh, who are my best managers in the past? You go, oh, Samantha was a great manager. So you're like, I'm gonna use Samantha's style of management. And all that yep. is saying to yourself is, Samantha managed you the way you liked and wanted. So you just adopted a style that worked for you. And it doesn't mean it's the best style for all of your people. So we, we teach and give tools and provide, you know, scientifically based suggestions on 
how do I manage John to get the most out of John? Okay, how do I get, how, same with Rich. And then if the three of us are on a team, what are the joys and frustrations that we're going to have on this team? It's all predictable, you know, within 85%. We're going to get most of it right. And that lets you unlock a lot of, a, a lot of you know, discretionary effort because people want to work for you harder when you're managing them the way they want to be managed. Absolutely. You had mentioned up front that psychometric was a word that you use. You employ psychologists there? We do. We have a science team and we, we spend a lot of money validating the science to make sure everything is, is, is really tight. You know, the funny, people don't want science. They want science to work for them. Hmm. They're like, great. It drives my car. It flies my plane. It makes sure my vaccines work. But you know, I, I don't actually want to know it or see it. I just wanted to be working behind the scenes. Yep. Got it. Uh, last question, then I'd be curious to uh, stop dominating here and John and you hop in, but I'd love to hear uh, an example. You don't have to mention the name of the company unless you'd prefer to, but I'd love to hear an example of a company that wasn't using you and what was the state of the company while they were not using you? And then what's a current state of the company that you feel like in the use of you and your tools, you are really able to help them go to the next level? Do you have an example of a company you could tell us a story about like that and how they evolved as a result of working with you? Yeah, the, uh, the company uh, Maersk, the largest shipping and logistics company in the world, they, um, they adopted us in in the seventies. And if you could think what a great time to get into shipping, you know, in the seventies and they scaled with globalization, you know, they, they were building outposts in every country in the world, you know, mostly in Southeast Asia and bringing it back to Europe and North America. And, you know, they, they were growing from, you know, 20,000 people to 400,000 people. And they needed they were coming into places like Vietnam and they, you know, they weren't that familiar with the culture or the education systems, but they used behavioral and cognitive analytics to build their teams. So the entire, the entire infrastructure was built using, using these tools. And some interesting things happened. Their, their master profiles changed over time. Hmm. If you think of a yacht cap, a, a ship captain, in 1975, no satellite communication, no satellite navigation, really bad weather forecasting, no computerized routing, and all of the all of the engine stuff was sort of like if it broke, you had to fix it. So this was this was the Wild West. You're like, good luck. We'll see you hopefully in 12 days when you cross the Atlantic. And and today, the you have satellite communication real time all the engines are wired back to headquarters with alarms that you have weather routing you don't route yourself they tell you where to go and containers all the material is in containers so when you come into a a place they're computer offloaded so you used to need someone who looked like an uh you know an entrepreneurial ceo to run the ship back in the 70s Today, you need someone who looks like the concierge at the front desk of a Hilton. It's, it's like, they don't, don't give any lip. You know, you're just on the boat. 
we're running yeah. it back from Stockholm. Uh, or actually, it's uh, it's a Danish company. So, um, <laughs> you know, but it's it it runs their entire business and it underpins everything they do, who they hire, how they staff their boats. And actually, one of their senior employees, um, this uh, Chinese guy, um, uh, Captain Zhusheng Wang, created a merchant marine academy in Shanghai. And he has 5,000 kids. I call them kids. They're, they're young adults working for him. He takes wow. these kids out of the inland China, teaches them how to be mariners based on cognitive and psychometric profiling, and then puts them on boats and creates like the world's most efficient merchant marine navy. And they're undercutting even, even the low cost, you know, Panamanian and Philippine workers on, on price because he gets their parents to sort of like sign them away when they're 16 to go to his, his, his mini Naval Academy. And it's, it's, it's crazy. I, I, I actually, I don't like his model from a humanitarian perspective, but I love the way that he's taken talent optimization to it, a completely new level. Wow. So Mike, uh, you know, we, we've learned a little bit about yourself uh, and your background is really not in psychometrics. It's really, you know, MBA student who's like started a search fund to buy companies and you end up with this company, Predictive Index. So we learned about your entrepreneurial rouse. We learned a little bit about Predictive Index. Uh, talk to us about this book you have coming out. What, what is the title of the book? What's the book all about? What are the learnings in there for entrepreneurs? Uh, the, the book is The Science of Dream Teams. And okay. I, I, the sort of motivation was as bad as Daniel and I were at doing the talent piece back when we yep. bought our first company, we really became students of this. And then all of a sudden when we acquired PI, I had access to you know, 45 million data points on, on people and hundreds of thousands of data points on jobs and companies and strategies. So you know, I felt a little bit of an obligation to write, write the book of, on talent optimization and, and, and put, you know, put some science behind the, you know, the, the art piece, you know, a lot of people are good at this from an art perspective of trying to put some data and analytics behind this. And, um, the, the piece, I, I used to be a sailing coach. Like you missed my, my real backstory. Okay. I was a sailing <laughs> coach and coach for the 96 U S Olympic team. So oh, there wow. are a lot of sports analogies in here because okay. one, I, I used to be a coach and I'm a fan of athletics. Uh, but also because athletics are far, far ahead of business in using talent optimization. Yeah. You've heard of, you know, Moneyball and yeah. Sabermetrics. They're using talent optimization. So the same discipline change that happened 30 years ago, baseball scouts used to go to stadiums and look at the five tools of baseball, you know, yep. running ability, throwing ability, fielding ability, hitting for power and hitting for average. And it was mostly a qualitative assessment, some quantitative stuff, but those same, those same scouts never go to a stadium. You know, they're only sitting behind computer screens, looking at stats, spin rates, launch angles. Yep. Um, and we need to have that same discipline change in business. We cannot do unstructured interviewing on a resume, which is the biggest piece of fiction in business and expect to build world-class teams predictably. We have to change the way we approach this. And that's wow. what I, 
I love it. Uh, you, you connected the dots so well in that short explanation. I'm, I'm a big sports guy. And you're right. When you think about it, you know, you mentioned sabermetrics and hockey, there's Corsi score. You know, there's the money ball concept where, you know, the GM of the Oakland A's didn't have to go watch a game to tell you who he's going to pick next in the draft. Uh, yet, if you apply that same concept to business and you had that same sort of scoring mechanism in your company, Mike, you could probably tell me who my best performers are and who I should let go if that applied to business. If that same, same type of science applied to, you know, on base percentage versus your batting average as an example, right? Moneyball. So that's pretty fascinating. So, so in your book, I'm sure you, you give that same parallel to the sports, to business, but, but what should an entrepreneur do about it? Like, so, you know, okay, I get it. And I agree. Uh, there are some things in terms of, um, you know, analyzing your, the performance of your players, your, your employees, if you will, applying that to your, your rankings and your decision makings and a whole bunch of other things. What's actionable uh, in this book in terms of an entrepreneur, if you read this book or key lessons you're going to take from it? Yeah, we, we did try and make it pretty, pretty actionable in the, at the end of every chapter, there's, there's sort of a next steps and in the appendix, I put, you know, we've got like 50 different types of assessments that you can look at and contemplate and see the pros and cons of it to, to give you some data coming in to try and make, you know, make piecemeal of it. But what I would actually say to the entrepreneur, and this is sort of the under 20, under 50 person entrepreneur, okay. is, is if you do not have a senior HR professional, talent professional who's waking up thinking about talent like the president of baseball operations does every single day yep. reporting to you reporting directly to the ceo the head of talent reporting directly to the CEO. if you don't have that then you're doing it and most people don't realize they're actually doing it they're the head of baseball operations for their company and if they're unhappy with the team they've got they have one person to look at in the mirror it's them so they have to embrace this discipline change first and foremost. So when Daniel and I sold Ledco, we, our first company, we didn't have anyone in HR, zero. Mm -hmm. we, we were winging it and we were doing it ourselves. We realized we were doing it ourselves. And it was good for us because I feel like I got a master's degree in this sort of thing at that company. But I promised myself, I go, the next company I invest in, the very first hire is going to be strategic HR. And it was, and my oh. life was so much better. And it's funny that the company I invested in was, was only 12 people. And there were two founders. There were these med school students who dropped out of, or took a leave of absence from Brown Medical School to found this company called Shape Up. And it was a great idea. But after two and a half years, Brown Medical School said, listen, you either got to come back or quit. You can't take any more leave of absence. So I invested in the company and I started as CEO. They went back to finish their their uh, MDs. Mm -hmm. And they were so mad at me when the first hire I made was strategic <laughs> HR. They're like, why are you hiring overhead? I mean, yeah. hire sales or a development. Like this is yeah. a, a software product. I was like, we're going to be 75 people in like three years. I'm like, do you want me to spend all my time doing this? Or do you want me to actually spend my time running the business? I go, wow. trust me. Like two years later, they're like, you were so right. And that first hire, Jackie Doobie, she's with me today, you know, at another company, yeah. you know, that, I, you know, I wouldn't go anywhere. She's the, you know, Paul D. Podesta of the Moneyball. She is the, you know, the 
making it happen strategically with talent. She's in charge of our culture, our hiring processes, all of those feedback loops. Yeah. And so I would tell your entrepreneurs, like, if you don't have a Jackie Doobie type, then you're doing it. It defaults to you. So if you don't like your culture, you don't like your people, it's on you. So they have to yeah. really own this. Can wow. So I mean, this, this, this is a, I'm going to challenge this just for a second, partially because I know Rich is eating this up like crazy, right? VP of leadership development, all about culture and people. And I have a lot of experience in being a small business entrepreneur. And to your point, I would have been the partner in the room going, wait a minute, like that's overhead. We got to invest in sales and, and so on and so forth. So I want to, I want to come back to it because, you know, I, I think through one of my prior roles, Mike, as a CEO of a company, and I remember telling people still to this day, when I was at that company, 80% of my time was on people. I, I barely had time to grow the business. I was, I was interpersonal stuff. It was things all over the place. I was spending 80% of my time. So when you say, if you don't have that person, you're it, I can resonate with that. But yet if I'm a small business entrepreneur who's looking to grow my business and I'm listening to this podcast and I'm reading your book, the thought of hiring a senior level strategic HR person and the overhead that comes associated with that is a very difficult decision to make. How would you push me over the edge or push our entrepreneurs over the edge and go, no, you have to make that investment over the salesperson. Like, I understand you're trying to grow your business, but here's why you have to do that. Can, can, you, can you banter around with me a little bit on that as far as trying to convince me that I need to do that? 65% of your, your costs are people and people related. So if you don't want someone strategically managing 65% of your expense, you're a fool. I mean, like a fool, fool. Like, <laughs> it, yep. I, it, I, I'm like, okay, so if you own a manufacturing so company, true. that isn't as true. But maybe you should have a head of operations or manufacturing. But it's yeah. that's the number one number that I would tell them 65%. Whatever, what people always do is their first human resources hire is some junior HR person who's running events, you know, making Run sure they're running payroll, ticking in time, <laughs> PTO, yep. and, and benefits, because that stuff's a pain and it has to be done. It has to be done right. You screw up payroll, you got problems. I'm not, I'm not saying don't sure. do that stuff right. Like sure. someone in accounting can figure that out because it's mostly accounting. Your first yep. talent hire, if you, it, it needs to be strategic or you're doing it, which is the same. If, if you don't have a sales manager, and you have four salespeople, guess what? You're doing it. You're the sales manager. So it's the, it's the same construct. And people have to get over the stigma of it being a cost center. It six, like six, six, a modern organization, 65% are people related expenses. So I, I would actually say the third leg of the stool right now, you have the CEO, the CFO, and the chief people officer. Because if you try and write a budget today, if you don't have people in the room, that's where all your expenses are. They're like, well, how many people are we going to hire? And usually the CFO says, well, our average is this uh, based on the revenue. We can hire 32, yeah. you know, as an example. And you go, great. I'm going to put the 32 best resources I can in, in, into the company because if you don't have this chief people officer and the, the CFO and the CEO in the room, you can't make a budget today. Hmm. Hmm. What did you say, Rich, when we were getting ready? You, you were like, every department's barking for like, 
you know, two to five more bodies. Yes. So it's, it's yep. just sort of like, yes, no, half, yes, no. And you're basically <laughs> going around, you're going around counting bodies. And what I'm saying is don't just do it in Excel, but say, oh, it turns out that you need a second baseman who can, you know, hit lead off. Like that's a very specific hire as opposed to, uh, we're going to hire uh, someone for $85,000 in March. And that's what most people, that's the level of talent optimization they're doing, which is, which is like little league. Wow. You had mentioned a term strategic HR. Can you define in your own words, what's the difference between hiring somebody in HR and hiring somebody in strategic HR? Yeah, great question. Well, I could give you all sorts of stuff, but the, the number one thing is, do they report to the CEO? If that's the easiest way, that's the number one question I ask. You know, I'll talk to a CEO. I'm like, John, yeah, who's the, who's the head of your talent function? Okay, yep. Yeah. Do they report to you? Oh, no. I'm like, then they're not taking it seriously. Hmm. I mean, okay, so the Celtics... Brad Stevens, the coach, he's no longer the coach. What's he doing? He went up to, to be the president of basketball operations. What's he doing? He's, he's doing Danny Ainge's old job, which is getting the right people. Like, it is that important. So it should report to the CEO. So you can, you can tell just, just by where, like, if, if the CEO is not getting value from that person strategically so that they are willing to have them to report into them, then they're not, then that's the wrong person. Keep finding a person until, yes, I am so glad this person reports into me because I couldn't do this job without them. That's when you know so, you have nailed the strategic HR. Mike, that's a great test. I'm curious in your experience, what percentage of, let's even do small and medium sized businesses or large corporations, large corporations could be a little bit different, but small and medium sized businesses, what percentage have a chief per, you know, people officer or strategic HR person reporting to the CEO entrepreneur? Tragically few. Tragic. It's tragic. It's, it's probably 20%. It's, it's I never, I've never had that role myself as an example. I'm so I like, I, I'm, I'm one of those fools. And I, I, I'm, I'm really not trying to throw shade at you or anyone else listening, but no, I believe I'm, that I'm throwing the, shade at myself. <laughs> the, the, I, I, the punch in the nose that everyone listening yeah. needs does not need a glove on it. It actually needs to be bare knuckles because this is important. Yeah. It's like, bang, you're like, that hurt. You're like, it better hurt because you need to do this. Like, and if, if you were listening to this and you don't have strategic HR reporting into you, you're leaving value on the table. When you were going through the four areas, design, interpersonal, engagement, and performance, it made me wonder about on the interpersonal side. As an entrepreneur, when we hire people for different roles, even if they are high performers in that particular role, what does PI do on the interpersonal side when there appears to be conflict there? How would you work with an entrepreneur who says, hey, I have a high-performing production person, a high-performing salesperson, but they're just not getting along, so they're not performing as highly as a team? So I go, what can you do for me, Mike? 
I, I would love to say we have all of the answers for this, but we really don't. There, um, what we would do from the, the predictive index is make sure that they understood the joys and frustrations of, of, their, of their respective um, styles. And those, those might be, they might be too much of the exact same person where they both are high dominance. So they want their ideas put into practice. So they both want their idea in practice and maybe they always disagree. So it's like someone's going to lose and it becomes a zero sum game. So we can tell you the joys and frustrations and we can give you coaching tips and how to modify and all of this great stuff. But I do think there's a, there's a piece that comes from a little bit of, this is the Patrick Lencioni world of five dysfunctions. You need to have a little bit of that, that trust going on that a lot of that is even if, if two people really don't like each other and they don't trust each other's intentions. I mean, if, if two people are bought into the company's mission and they trust each other and they both want their idea into practice and they both say their, say their piece and then they come to a decision and one's right and one's wrong, if, with a good culture, you move on from that. But I, I do think that culture and trust piece that, I mean, if you haven't read Lencioni's Five dis Dysfunctions, do it. It's, it's, it's not the old framework for this sort of thing, but it's a great one for you know, that, yeah. that sort of dynamic. But it's you know, outside of toxic, toxicity on the team and culture, I think we, we do a long way to make sure that um, you know, Rich and John, I wish I had you both take the, you know, our, our, our behavioral assessment beforehand. We have a relationship guide, all machine learning. I punch it in and say, here's how you guys you know, the joys and frustrations of you two. And you'd probably go, uh-huh. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh, yeah. Yeah. We do that. Yeah. That would help. We should start doing that. Yep. And well, we're, cool. well, I think we'd find out Mike that we're both joys a hundred percent of the time. And uh, <laughs> so, end of assessment. <laughs> I love it. I mean, of course we all have our joys and frustrations. I love in some of the work that I do. And it sounds like we do some similar work in this and, the opportunity to create higher consciousness in people about the obstacles of their own personality and how to remove their obstacles they put up for themselves. And as you're nodding, uh, I'd be curious for you to speak to the role of that in leadership. I thank you for that setup. Um, in um, it's it's actually in chapter two of the book, I talk about, you have to start with yourself. You can't be a world-class leader. You can't build a dream team mm -hmm. until you become self-aware and deal with yourself. And there's this really fun framework that uh, it's, it's not my framework, but I talk about it in the book. Uh, it, it was designed by a guy named Jim Allen, who's a partner at Bain and company in the UK. And I ran into it in 2006. It's called front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt. So in the front of your t-shirt, is everything that you've gotten a job for your whole life. You, you, you know, your, your parents brag on you about it. You know, you puff up your chest and you're like, yeah, that's me. And uh, the back of t-shirt is, is the shadow side. The things that take you out occasionally, the things that really you're not proud of and, you're, and a lot of people aren't aware of, but others, as they walk out the door, can articulate them and go, wow, he's an egomaniac. Wow, he doesn't listen. Wow, he he really is so enamored with his own ideas that he's not bringing other data in play. 
Those are real on the back of my t-shirt. And it took me a while to figure out what they were. And the beautiful part about identifying what's on the back of your t-shirt is you can't get rid of them, but you can understand when they're about to take you out and they will take you out left not in check. And this, this, the, be the beautiful part, if you embrace this front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt concept, I share my back of t-shirt with my entire team. I'm like, here's, here's my back of t-shirt. I'm not proud of it. I don't want to do it. If you see me doing it, I ha even have a safety word, Ticonderoga. Like they say that, they're like, you're doing it. And the deal with the Ticonderoga is I can't get mad at you for bringing it up, you know, or I, I shouldn't get mad at you for bringing it up. And, and what happens is like with listening, it gives them another shot. They go, you're not listening to me right now. And I go, okay, sorry. I'm a, I, I physically sit on my hands. I go, I'm going to sit on my hands for five minutes. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to be as open-minded as I can. And what I've, I've recruited my team to help me with the stuff I'm not as good at. And it does a couple things. One, it makes me better. But two, when I go to give them corrective stuff, they already know, like I've set up this thing of I'm being open, vulnerable and transparent and I'm the boss. So they're not as guarded about me talking about their back of t-shirt. They'll yeah. actually go there. So I can help them as a coach and mentor with their career development. It creates this virtuous positive cycle that you actually have a self-aware company so that John could be like, you know, of the three of us, I'm probably the least best at this. Why, why don't you do it, Rich or Mike? Or, 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 we, or we actually go, you, you know, the other way, we, we, we work towards each other, we help each other and we get better together and is this any different, John, as a sportsman? Not to say you're not a sportsman, Rich, but is this any yeah. different than a team on a timeout going, I'm getting my clock cleaned by this player over here. We need to double team them or they're going to post three more goals yeah. on us. And yeah. good teams get together, talk about what's happening and respond. And you can't do that if you're not aware and open and transparent about this sort of stuff. Not only that too, Mike, I think it's also open and transparent about what language you are going to use with each other to have that openness. Because in sports, what you'll sometimes see is egos start coming in, right? Because they don't have the language amongst each other, the teammates, the coaches, and they don't have that open communication to be able to say, hey, you're leaving yourself exposed back door here. You got to see that. And you tell your teammate that in the middle of action and they fire back at you. The next thing you know is a fight on the sidelines, you know? Yeah, they're uh, like, focus on your own stuff. And you're like, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But if you have that language and that communication where you are, you are showing your front and the back of your t-shirts to each other, you do have that openness. You do have these safety words to be able to say, Hey, we're, we're on the same team here and be able to have that communication. It's so powerful. So powerful. And you see that, and they often in sports call it, you know, locker room dynamics, you know, when the yeah. teams really like each other, you can get on each other. You're like, you know, like, dude, you got to pass the ball or take the shot or whatever it is, or, you know, roll, roll off onto a double team, whatever the, the, the code word is good teams. You see them talking even fiercely to each other, but they're nodding. They're like, yep, yep, yep. It's happening. And they respond and they get, they get better um, as the yep. game goes on. You know, I'd be curious when you talk about shadow side, I believe the shadow was originally a Carl Jung concept as a psychologist and there's deep work in that 
and it's very psychology based. Sometimes it's difficult to explain. How do you recommend a leadership team talk about things like the shadow side with people who aren't like you and I are, where we're like, we love that stuff. Like you got a good book talking about shadow. Uh, you know, let's read it. Let's set up a follow-up call. I love that. But not everybody's like that. You talk about shadow side. There's some people that are just like eyes glazed over. And like, how do you get to those people on a leadership team who aren't just naturally drawn to this stuff? Yeah, that, that, that is, that is a good point. I, 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 ho I hope for if, if people read the book, we tried to keep the language, you know, really real as opposed to, I throw out psychometrics because it's almost like a sensational word and people are like, whoa, what's that? It's a sexy but, term, right? But like, wow. <laughs> interesting choice of sexy, Rich. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I do it because it's, it's kind of got a little bit of a, a what? I want to know more about that kind of, but not really. Um, keep the language real because you have to speak to your audience in, in really practical terms, whether you go all the way to, you know, Carl Jung's, you know, scientific, you know, you know, hypothesis about the shadow side versus if you really use it and say, they're usually linked. You know, if, if, if you're a hard driver and you never give up, you probably have stubborn on the back. And those two things are on the front and the back of your t-shirt. They're tied with a string. You can't, you can't have one without the other. You're just sort of like, how do you make sure that the stubborn doesn't rear its head all, the, all, all day, all the time? So you can still be, you know, a hard charger driven and have the joy of that without the frustration of that. And all of a sudden someone goes, oh yeah, I get that. There's a string, they're attached. Yep, got it. You know, they're not talking about deep psychometric, um, you know, jargon, which like I said, people don't want the science. They want it just to work for them. Yep, no doubt. I love the idea of having a safety word. Do you encourage your teammates to have a safety word also that other teammates are aware of about what is their thing? We do. And, and actually people have started hijacking my safety word. They're using it too. Like people are like, the, it's, it's permeated from the senior team to the next level of leadership because we do a lot of skip levels and mentoring and Whenever we mentor, we, we start talking about front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt and teasing it out of engagement reports and 360 reviews. And the, the key thing here is don't link comp to career and personal development. Absolutely. Be because then people will be guarded. They go, if I really tell you I got some stuff I'm working on, is my bonus going to be smaller? Make the bonus a calculation. Make it at a completely different time so people can really be open. And I'm, I'm very interested. I have all my direct reports. I'm like, you should be as interested in that person's career as they are. You're like, great. I saw this article you're going to love. Here's a seminar that I think you should take two days off to attend. And when you do that, they're like, they've got my back. So when you actually give them some really tough feedback, they're like, oh, Mike's still got my back. You know, like, because they, they know it. You're, you're as in it as, as they're as their coach was in, you know, some sport. They're like, no, they got my back. It was tough feedback, but I needed it. Yep. You used this term in there. I'd love for you to elaborate on self-aware company. Yeah. It's just, you know, 
does the culture of everyone trying to be self-aware um, permeate? Um, and that probably comes from Lencioni's trust. If you, if you have that trust, um, you, can, you can go there because doing your dirty laundry of things you're not good at is, is difficult and people are guarded. I asked people back of t-shirt questions on the interview and I'll even tell them, I said, listen, I'm not messing with you. If you give me some malarkey back of t-shirt, like I work too hard, you're not getting the job, you, you know, and I'm the CEO, so you're not getting the job. And they're like, wow, this person's kind of <laughs> hardcore. But, you know, everyone practices, you know, you know, what are your weaknesses? And they practice yeah. one or two. I asked for three. Now, now everyone knows they're going to come prepared for three. Um, because your viewership, it's, it's what, 40 million? Yes, approximately. Uh, we just That's got great. the 50, excellent. 50, sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to offend. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how guarded some people are. And you really have to work on that over time for, to break down that, that guard. Yep. Mike, really appreciate all the insight today. And, I, and can you tell us a little bit more, uh, when is Science of Dream Teams coming out and where can people find it? Right around the corner, July 6th. Um, well, you can find everything in Amazon. It's always there, but uh, Barnes and Noble. Um, but there is, there's a website for the book, dreamteams.io. And okay. you can actually, you can, you can take a behavioral assessment and a team assessment there, um, you know, oh, and great. you're not going to get added to a marketing list. Um, you can, is, that, is that available right now to do those team assessments and individual assessments? Yeah, it is. All right. And okay. the, um, the, the book uh, is, uh, is published by McGraw-Hill, and um, we're really excited about it. It was my co-author, Stephen Baker, was a journalist. And um, he was the technical editor for Business Week. And uh, so he, he keeps things flowing. It's really easy to read. So it says the science of dream teams, but it's not some drudge of a, of a scientist trying to work through grammar. Um, awesome. Well, Mike, really appreciate all the insight today. It was a pleasure to have you on. Look forward to reading the book. Great. Thanks, John. Thanks, Rich. Thank you, Loved Mike. It. You have a great day. Please stick around for a few more minutes while Rich and I break down this episode. Rich, the science of dream teams uh, is very close to the episode we just recorded recently, how to build a world-class sales team. But this one had a little bit of a different element that really clicked with me. Again, sometimes the sports analogies really click with me. But when he started talking about, you know, how sports teams are doing analytics on their players and they have the most important person in the organization reporting to basically the president or owner of the club who handles people, yet in companies, and he didn't give us a percentage. When I asked him how many small to medium-sized businesses have their strategic HR, their chief people person reporting to the CEO, it's a devastating low number. I, it must be because I, I've never had a company that I've been involved with where the C, chief people, uh, people officer reports the CEO. Uh, and I know a lot of entrepreneurs kind of skip out on that expense early on in their business because it is overhead. It is a cost. So that was a little bit of an aha moment for me today when 65% of your expenses are in people, yet you don't have you know, a very important person in the company reporting the CEO who actually manages that. I'm curious for you, is it something that you thought about, considered, and said, nah, no, I'm not going to do that? Or is it something that never really occurred to you as a CEO? Um, you, you know me as an entrepreneur, right? You know me as an individual, an entrepreneur. Sometimes I can, you know, look at the frugalness of running a startup business. And I usually just say, you know, what? I'll just do it myself. I'm a good interviewer. 
I'm good with people. I'm a good leader. I know what I'm looking for. I'll do it myself, just like he said. But then I'd find myself in positions where 80% of my time I'm managing people instead of growth of growing, of growing the business. So, you know, it's kind of a, you can't have both. You can't spend 80% of your time on people issues and 80% of your time on growing your business. That's 160% of your time. You don't have 160% of your time. But as an entrepreneur, I would always take the path of, I need to have somebody go sell some more business to grow my business, or I need someone to go operate the business to produce the, the income. And, and usually would take that role on myself, just like he said. Now, was that the right decision? I think Mike would say, no, that was the wrong decision. Because if you had somebody handling the people, you could actually spend time growing the business. And as an entrepreneur, that might be more fruitful in the long run. I want to challenge what you're saying there. When you okay. go, I can't grow the business if I'm spending 80% of my time on the people. Because I have a relatively deep held belief that the people grow the business and your job is to grow the people and the people grow the business. So I would actually go like on the other end of the spectrum without talking it out with you, I'd go, wow, you should be working 80% of your time with the people because that's exactly who's growing your business are your people. So can, and and it doesn't need to be in the form of a challenge, but what are you talking about when you say, I can't grow the business when I'm when I'm with 80% of my time with the people. What are you doing to grow the business that's not growing your people? Well, under that theory, though, Rich, the CEO is the chief people officer. You don't need to hire one. You are that one under that theory. I think that the more of what I was trying to say to, to maybe paraphrase or rephrase what I what I said is, you know, the concept of working in your business versus on your business. Yeah. If you spend if you're spending 80% of your time working in your business, then you can't be spending 80% of your time working on your business. That's too much time. So, you know, in this particular context, I was doing um, you know, 80% of my time working with interpersonal relationships and the hiring and firing and you know, involved in all of that, working in the business of the people yeah. versus on the people uh in, in the company or more strategic uh ways to grow the company overall. You know, uh, and if I had a chief people officer in that role reporting to me directly, who was handling all of that and working in the people business of my company, I'd be able to work on my business a little bit better. Yeah, I think I get what you're saying. That resonated when you said work on it versus in it. And and the work on it type pieces, you're more limited when you're doing all of the people type stuff. Uh, So I get that. Uh, you, you could probably guess one of the parts that he talked about that I loved was a front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt. Oh my and he talks yeah. about the shadow side of things. I mean, he is talking, uh, you know, my love language, basically. Uh, yep. And how cool is it? Like I, I wrote it. I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it correctly. It was uh, Tandaroga was yep. his safety word. And he gave us a clue on what's part of what's in his shadow side is he said something about listening. Yep. And that's a pretty common thing for hard driving entrepreneurs who are A type personalities, who they're responsible for the growth or the death of the company. Like that listening thing can be really difficult when yep. you've already got a head full of steam on a particular direction. So I think it it is rather self aware of him to work with his team. And the way he said, recruit your team to help you with things that you're not good at. He didn't yep. use all these words, but he did expose a listening thing to go, 
I'm not always that good at listening. So I told my team, I'm not always that good at listening. If you really need me to listen, here's how you can key me in with common language that you're not going to offend me. Go ahead and key me in. I do need to listen sometimes when it's not my preference. I think that is, yeah. that he talked about a self-aware company. How self-aware is he as a CEO to do that? Yeah, no doubt. And, and he also said, you know, in his book, you, you kind of, you know, without even reading his book yet, actually, uh, you know, called what one of his early chapters are by one of your questions, which is, you know, the, 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 the consciousness of your own uh, personality or, you know, and how you do it. And his response was, in order to grow a world-class team, you first as the entrepreneur need to be self-aware uh, of yourself. But not only that, he took it a step further. Not only do you know what need to know what's on the back of your t-shirt, you should feel open sharing that with your team. Yeah. Now you have some vulnerability there, but also your team's going to feel more vulnerable with you, that you are having the same language. You are sharing different experiences. And what was best about that, I thought, was, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're always trying to coach your team, right? You're always trying to coach them on things that can be doing better, things are doing well. Well, how open is your team going to be to your feedback when you also know you're open to your vulnerabilities and your self-awareness? So I thought that was a very key message. You know, you brought it up again. I have highlighted in my notes was the idea of common language. Yeah, I find a company like uh, the Predictive Index, one of the benefits they provide is where there is a neutral common language to talk about difficult topics. You know, talk about something like listening, and I don't know what their language is on how they communicate it with the preferences that they're assessing and so forth. But with the company that we use, for example, it, it does provide that common language. And I'm, I'm confident Predictive Index does also. Instead of saying, hey, John, uh, you're awfully arrogant in that meeting. Like, that's, like, that's uh, offensive. Like, we're going to get caught up on the language instead of talk about what actually happened versus, hey, uh, you know, whatever the words are around listening with predictive index to go, hey, uh, there was this that I know is low on your preference list. And here's how that came out. And here's how that impacted others. Rather than it being my opinion, PI gives a data-based common language to be able to say, you know that you're low on something. And here's how that impacted people. And Maybe you should consider bringing a different thing to that particular situation next time. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I'd encourage everybody to go to dreamteams.io and fill out that free assessment for you and your team, as well as get the book, uh, Science of Dream Teams, and it's coming out July 6th, which should be the week that you're listening to this podcast as well. So uh, I certainly look forward to getting the book myself. Me as well.